0: Mr. Demille, I'm ready for my curve
1: I'll scroll up sometimes, see me. First in my, job of
0: the world. Fasten your seat belts. It's going to be a bumpy night, sir. the uh stuff that
1: dreams are made of. Hi, Wendy here. Before we start off our episode today, I want to remind everybody to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Also, please leave a rating or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on social media by simply searching Silver Screen Time Machine, and please make sure you follow our podcast, Silver Screen Time Machine, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome again to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review. Today, we have Deanne for now the fourth time coming back to the show. Hello, Deanne. Welcome.
0: Hi, Wendy. Thank you for having me on for number four. Yeah,
1: (laughs) always great. So today, this is my pick. We are getting in our time machine, and we are going back to 1964, and we are going to talk about... The Yellow Rolls Royce. The Yellow Rolls Royce. I adore this movie. It's not the greatest film. It's not the most wonderful film out there. But I just love this movie to death. What did you think of it on cursory?
0: I thought it was sort of a comfort food movie for me. It was just a lot of fun to watch. Yeah and the thing that i thought was the most exciting about it is i think sometimes with some of the actors you you think you've seen all of their movies or like the big ones and you don't know about a little one like this and and so it was a nice surprise yeah this is an all-star cast this is what they call a composite
1: film which is a screenplay composed of two or more distinct stories there are three separate little stories here the only real consistency throughout the stories is the yellow rolls royce it's what ties all the stories together i guess also all the stories have romantic liaisons within the yellow rolls royce
0: yes there's there's some thematic yes things that take place throughout the thing similarities similarities and
1: another thing I noticed particularly was one or more of the characters seems to undergo a complete character change throughout the the little segment they start out one way and they end up completely different
0: Yes, I would agree, especially in the the second and the third.
1: Yeah, Yeah. in the first two, really, but I... Oh, yes, okay, yes, I get it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyhow, I guess we should talk about the yellow Rolls-Royce since it is the main star of the show. They said they used a 1931 Rolls-Royce Phantom II, which means nothing to me, but uh, they did say the car was originally blue, and they used 20 coats of yellow paint to make it yellow. I believe that it looked pretty bright. Yeah, I wonder why why it was necessary for twenty, but who knows? It was really <laughs> hard to cover that blue, I guess. And the film was adapted from an idea which was based on a German film called In Those Days from 1947. That particular film In Those Days addressed the issues of collected guilt during the Nazi era. And they used the device of a car built in 1933 and dismantled in 1947 to narrate the various experiences of its owners in a series of seven separate episodes. So that's sort of where they got this idea from that particular film. That's really interesting, considering the fact that this film does none of that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was just they took the idea. I mean, obviously, this really... there is some level of Nazis in this particular film but not that's not at all what it's about but the screenplay and the story are by Terence Rattigan, a great British playwright and screenwriter um, he is a two-time Oscar nominee for The Sound Barrier which is a wonderful David Lean film very little known David Lean film and Separate Tables which is one of another of my favorite films and he previously worked with director Anthony Asquith in 1963, The VIPs, which I really liked that film as well. And it was a very successful film. Some interesting things I found out about Terence Radigan: He served in the Royal Air Force in World War II as a tail gunner. And I think this is really interesting because I think... We can understand the Rex Harrison's character a little more because Terrence Radigan's father was a diplomat and a womanizer, constantly cheating on his mother. I mean, that's not like Rex Harrison's mm. character, but it says Radigan wrote a number of plays which centered on issues of sexual frustration, failed relationships, or a world of repression and reticence. He also saw himself as an outsider. People say that's because he was a closeted homosexual. He was also fascinated with the life and character of T.E. Lawrence, and in 1960, I did not know this, I found this very interesting, in 1960, he wrote a play called Ross, based on Lawrence's exploits, and there were preparations made to film it with Dirk Beauregard, accepting the role of T.E. Lawrence. However, it didn't proceed because the rank organization withdrew its support, not wishing to offend David Lean and Sam Spiegel, who had started to film
0: Lawrence of Arabia. That's interesting. So like several, well, a couple of projects around T.E. Lawrence going on around the same yeah. time. Uh, he was a
1: great British hero, I gather. You know, obviously we know him from Lawrence of Arabia, but I don't think he has the same acclaim in America. You don't really read about T.E. Lawrence as much. Director Anthony Asquith, hopefully, he collaborated on 10 films with Terence Radigan. He was a lifelong friend of his and along, he was also a lifelong friend with producer Okay, producer, Anatoly de Grunewald. De Grunewald?
0: I'll go with that. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, it could be Anatoly. Anthony Asquith is very interesting as well. His father was the prime minister of Britain. H. H. Asquith was his name. He was the prime minister of Britain from 1908 to 1916. Anthony was kind of known, some of the movies Anthony was known for is Pygmalion and also the adaptation of an Oscar Wilde play. He did the film, The Importance of Being Earnest, which I think is also a very well-known film of his. Now, coincidentally, and this is a fun fact, I suppose, coincidentally, it was Anthony's father, H.H. Asquith, the prime minister, who had Oscar Wilde arrested for homosexual behavior, which led to his ruin. Ironically, Anthony himself was a repressed homosexual.
0: Well, that is interesting.
1: And he was also an alcoholic and sadly died a mere four years after this film this film was his last film the yellow rolls royce he is also the great uncle of helena bonham carter his half sister being her grandmother
0: yes i was going to say that if you didn't slip that in because she is one of my favorite actresses (laughs) yeah Yeah. so we have a little tie into current modern day actress Mm -hmm. here
1: today but again It really makes me wonder about the character, the first segment character, the diplomat, because he's sort of a lord and a diplomat. He works in the foreign office. But his title is something, the Marquis of Frinton. And he's also, I don't know what he's, a counselor or diplomat of some sort. Yeah,
0: I think he mentions the foreign office. He says the the, foreign office. Yes,
1: yes. uh, He's some sort of important individual in the foreign office. So I think that both of them having fathers of politics maybe influence this character a bit. To our producer, Anatole de Grunwald, Whatever his name is. Anyway, he was born in St. Petersburg and he is the son of a Russian diplomat. <laughs> Very oh, wow. strange. Yeah, he's the son of a Russian diplomat to the Tsar Nicholas II. Unfortunately, they were forced to flee to France when he was seven because of the Bolshevik Revolution. They were kind of killing off the Tsars and their staff. And he also worked with Asquith and Radigan on the VIPs. You'll see as we go through the crew. Everybody also worked on the VIPs. We just say that in advance. All the people on this crew seem to also work on the VIPs, which is. If you haven't seen the VIPs, also, I highly recommend that film.
0: Yeah, I would as well. I kind of got the impression that this was, you know, the VIPs was very successful. So this was another shot at that kind of success.
1: The format, though, is slightly different on this with with the composite stories, whereas the VIPs, it's a bunch of different stories, but they're all intermingled together in one big story. This one is definitely three separate stories. Our cinematographer, somebody I really like, Jack Hildyard. He was an Oscar winner for Bridge on the River Kwai. He
0: was a... I knew he had a David Lean Yeah, link. <laughs> he has a David
1: Lean connection. He also collaborated with David Lean on The Sound Barrier and Hobson's Choice. Hobson's Choice being another of my favorite David Leans. And of course, he also worked on the VIPs. I'm a really nice cinematographer. The cinematography in this is very pretty. It's in color. And there are a lot of beautiful views in some of the lo- on locations, especially in Italy. And I believe that they say they shot also in Austria. They're claiming it's Yugoslavia, but I think it was actually shot in Austria. There's some very beautiful landscape views here and a very nice color. Our editor is Frank Clark. He worked on a lot of British-made MGM films. And he, of course, edited the <laughs> the VIPs, <laughs> but he also did Mogambo. So yeah, really say it's Mogombo. Yeah. I can say that properly. Mogambo, and, which this one I really like, this is a really good film too, Light in the Piazza.
0: Oh, that is a nice yeah. film.
1: Yeah. It's a nice film with Olivia de Havilland mm-hmm. and that Italian actor whose name I can't pronounce either, Rossini Brazzi. Rossana. Rossana Brazzi. Yeah, yeah, that's a rough one. Now, the one, one thing I really particularly like in this film are one crew person that I really like and another complicated name the music by ritz ortolani yes ritz ortolani he's an italian composer he did a lot of italian films he did a lot of spaghetti westerns obviously not the fistful of dollar ones but other spaghetti westerns he did exploitation films he did euro spy films and mondo films do you know what mondo films are
0: I have no idea.
1: I thought you might not, so I brought some information. (laughs) I appreciate that. Mondo films are a subgenre of exploitation films and documentary films. Many Mondo films are made in a way to resemble a pseudo-documentary, usually depicting sensational topics, scenes, or situations.
0: Hmm. So I wonder if that's sort of similar to what we might call like a mockumentary now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. (laughs) That's interesting. Now I feel like I need to go see a Mondo film. Film. A Mondo
1: film. Actually, another interesting thing is he worked with modern day director. He worked with Quentin Tarantino on a number of his films, including the Kill Bill films and Django Unchained. He is a two-time Oscar nominee. He won a Golden Globe for his song in this film, Forget Damani, which is a really, really cute number that song
0: is an earworm like you it it just gets in your head and it's very catchy will not leave you and it is very very catchy
1: and I particularly like almost all the music he does in the Italian section of this particular film. Of course, he was Italian and he did a lot of Italian films, but it's very cute, quaint Italian-sounding music that I really enjoy in that those portions. But I also really like the theme he has for the Yellow Rolls Royce as well. Mm-hmm. It's very majestic-sounding music. It goes throughout all the segments. He has this music for the Yellow Rolls Royce, a theme for it. It's very beautiful and majestic-sounding. Okay, that's my thoughts on the crew. Any thoughts you have?
0: I don't have any thoughts on the crew, All right. Um, so I didn't know if you wanted to... Yeah, let's get into into the actors. Let's just get into it. Let's
1: get into it. We're going to start. Let's start at the beginning. We'll start with our segment one. So this is the first story, and this story is going to have... We're going to talk about some of the actors and the plot. So we start out on this particular segment with the Yellow Rolls Royce.
0: You uh, you see the, the Yellow Rolls Royce in the credits, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it starts out with it being brought to... The place, the place where they're selling it,
1: and it ends with the yellow Rolls Royce. Actually, as yeah. Well.
0: Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're,
1: we're not going to say what happens. But the uh, yellow but, Rolls Royce is at the actual end of the film too, and I think it's a very interesting end as well. What is the next step for the yellow Rolls Royce? You know? I love that too. Yeah, it's you very just neat. you just see that yellow Rolls Royce going down the highway. Uh, you know, it's and- on to its <laughs> next next adventure, whatever that might be. But we're starting off. We see Rex Harrison. He plays. As I said, the Marquis de Frinton, Charles is his name, he's looking for a car. For his wife he has forgotten her anniversary so he's going to buy her a car as a present how nice huh but I thought it was funny the way he came into the showroom and he's he's looking at the car and this eager young salesperson <laughs> is trying to show him this revolutionary motor and he's really wants to show him this motor all he cares about is the shape of the decanter and the telephone is on the wrong side and the seat isn't the right length for her ladyship's legs and I think you already in the very beginning get a sense of this character being kind of very shallow and frivolous. And that's
0: how he kind of presents to you right off the bat. What did you say? Yeah, I also kind of got the sense that he was sort of unhappy with the young salesman. Yeah. because the young salesman was probably treating him like he would any other customer. because well, yes,
1: then the other guy comes in and starts completely deferring to him. That's right. He even says, I believe we have her ladyship's leg measurements. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, really? Come on. But it gets you a sense of how important, supposedly, I guess he is, his character. I thought some interesting things about Rex Harrison. He's always a fun person to talk about. Did you know his name was originally Reginald Carey Harrison? No, I didn't. And this gives you a good impression of Rex Harrison. This will tell you all you need to know about Rex Harrison. When he was a young boy, he changed his name to Rex because it was Latin for the word king.
0: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Nice, nice, confident
1: young lad. (laughs) Exactly. And I think a lot of people are aware that Carol Landis committed suicide after he ended an affair with her. That was a big scandal in his life. He's kind of known as not a very nice guy. Rex Harrison himself, not the character. Uh, He's always been kind of considered an arrogant jerk from what I've read of all the things. There's a nice example that Stanley Holloway tells about Rex Harrison. Stanley Holloway was in My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison about one night they were doing their play the my fair lady a fan came to the stage door trying to get his autograph she was all excited and he came out so oh, sir can i have your autograph and he told her to sod off <laughs> and then the old it was an old lady apparently it said the old lady was so enraged that she rolled up her program and struck him with it and then Stanley Holloway, who was kind of standing behind him, he was following him out. He commented sarcastically that for the first time in theater history, the fan has hit the shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just thought that was... That's a great story. Yeah, I thought
1: that was a funny story. And I, the thing I thought was interesting, did you know that he was blind in one eye? because of a, a bout of childhood
0: measles. It wasn't from the lady whacking no, know, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I didn't know. Not an
1: actual injury by a fan or any no. disgruntled girlfriend or something. No, he it said he had a childhood bout of measles and it blinded him in one eye. You have any thoughts on Rex Harrison? Rex
0: Harrison is somebody I can sort of take or leave as an actor. I think he's talented, but maybe after hearing about his personality, yeah. maybe that comes off in his acting as well because he plays these characters that distance themselves from yeah you.
1: aloof aloof yes.
0: we should mention
1: he does have an academy award best actor from my fair lady okay so let's get back so he purchases this yellow Rolls royce for his Wife, and he wants to surprise her with it that night. And then he goes off to the foreign office to go back to work. And <laughs> at the foreign office also, like, he seems to not take his job seriously <laughs> at all. This doesn't seem to be all that concerned about a job. He's just kind of like, well, whatever. And he's all excited because this gold cup race is coming up and it's a horse race. And he has this horse that he's entering in that he thinks is going to win. And that's his big, big priority. People are saying, <laughs> (laughs) The Albanian ambassador is having a war on his hands and he needs to speak
0: to you. Doesn't he know it's Gold Cup Day? (laughs) That poor Albanian (laughs) ambassador is all I could think when I was watching that. I'm like, I hope things turn out well for this poor man. Yeah, like (laughs) he has no regard for the fact that
1: maybe it's more important that you help people that countries are on the brink of war rather than worrying about a horse race. But his whole focus is his horse race, right? And he's named his horse, what, June the 10th or something? What is, I think it's... It's after their anniversary. Yeah, it's the date of their anniversary yes. is the name of the horse. I think it's 10th of June or June the 10th. So he's going to go off to go to the thing. And there's some papers that he's waiting for. And this fellow comes in, one of his other assistants, his name is Fane. He is played by John Fane. He is played by Edmund Purdom. Edmund Berdon was interesting. He was an English actor. He was actually thought to be the next big Hollywood heartthrob star in the 1950s. He was slated into that role, but he wound up having this very publicized affair with Tyrone Power's wife, Linda Christian, and then the starring vehicle called the Egyptian that was supposed to be his big claim to fame. It was a terrible flop at the box office and it kind of doomed him in Hollywood. And he did, however, work extensively in Italy and Europe for the rest of his career, but he never became became this great star that he was expected to become. He's a very handsome guy.
0: He is. But he didn't make a great impression on me in this film, but I think it, it's just He's kind role. of very
1: blah to yeah, me. <laughs> like, yeah. he's been, his acting talent is not showcased, certainly. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe just because of his looks that he was supposed to be. But he plays this womanizing character, which, again, maybe this is something that Terrence again based on his father. So this Thane tells... Charles, that, hey, I'll, I'll come bring these papers to at your house. And Charles like, oh, great, great, great. And then he, he says, you can stay for the next day or whatever. And he said, oh, no, you're sending me to Caracas. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you wanted that post. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, my wife wanted you to give me that post. <laughs> and we understand now that it's because the wife thinks that maybe he needs to be away from all these women, I guess, that he's sort of, it's obviously a well-known fact that he's kind of socializing with these women because even Charles seems to be aware of it.
0: Yes, I was going to say that. He he makes an allusion to that as well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, I mean, we get the impression that this guy's kind of a, a little gigolo of some sort. So that's all resolved. Charles goes home. He sees his wife. And this is our first introduction to the wife. She's played by Jean. Jeannie or Jean? This is one I looked up.
0: This is Jean Moreau.
1: Jean Moreau. Yeah, that sounds very... So she is a French actress. And I... I thought it was interesting. Orson Welles called her the greatest actress in the world.
0: I had seen her. I think the only other thing yeah, that I've seen her not in a is, lot of is Jules and Jim, and I loved her in that.
1: Yeah, she's not in a lot. I think she was tended to be more in European films. I don't know that she was in a ton of American films. She's also called the French Betty Davis. Interesting. Yeah, I guess she, she was an excellent actress. Again, this role I'm not sure gives her much to work with.
0: No, it's I don't kind think of
1: a. So. But you start to get the impression as you're going along in this segment that Charles is very fond of her and very much in love with her and that she doesn't quite seem to necessarily be as enthusiastic about him. As a matter of fact, he suggests maybe she needs time off. She needs a holiday and she sort of jumps at that <laughs> right off the bat. And he's talking about how she went to the doctor apparently. She was feigning some problem and he told her the doctor said oh there's absolutely nothing wrong with you <laughs> and when she seems to get annoyed and then she has a headache and she she's going to retire right after the party and he's like oh i'll retire with you and you can see that she doesn't like that so you already get the impression that something is clearly awry we don't know what but something is awry and then they go to dinner and they're all at the dinner table and as they're having dinner John Fane. He's such a weird name to say. Fane comes in with the papers and Charles says, oh, thank you for the papers. Go sit down there with my wife. She'll give you a seat. He sits down and then they start to talk casually, but then they start doing these asides to each other where it becomes very apparent that they're having an affair.
0: Yeah, they're trying to plot their next rendezvous.
1: And then, you know, of course, he's being called out of town the next day to go to this place. And so she's desperate to see them. And they're trying to have this secretive conversation in the middle of this dining table with 8 billion people.
0: Yeah. Which you could maybe almost get away with, considering how big that table is. Yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) But there is a lady there. Her name in the film is Lady Angela St. Simone. She was played by a lady named Moira Lister. But this Angela St. Simone, you get the impression also that she also had some sort of fling with the Spain because she, at one point, she talks to him and she's like, well, you didn't write to me. Obviously, they had an affair and that petered out. So she has kind of got her eye on what's going on here. And you kind of sense this is going to be a trouble lady. And I read that Moira Lister, and I don't know why this is, but for some reason, Rex Harrison insisted that most of her lines be cut, and they were.
0: I saw that also. And I, but why? I didn't say cons- why. He hated her. I'm not sure. What was he afraid that she was going to upstage him? I, I don't know. I
1: don't know. They said this lady, she tended to play a lot of posh type ladies. And she this is exactly the kind of character she plays here Fane and Eloise. Uh, they tried to make this plan to go meet at the summer house or the guest house or someplace. And in the meantime they bring in the yellow Rolls Royce and Charles is like, oh, we have to go for a spin and you can see she's like so frustrated that he's taking her away. And meanwhile they go take the car out and etc. They come back and when they come back she's like, I'm so tired, I have to go to bed and he's like, oh, well I'm going to bed too. <laughs> and she tries to leave it so he has to stay because she says, Charles will take care of you, but he's like, no I won't I'm going with you. And then the poor Albanian guy's like, "What?" There's there's a conflict on my border. <laughs> oh, he says the situation is very grave. And he says, let's just sleep on it. You know, I feel like things that look very grave will look better in the morning. And it's just like, what the heck? Like, it, this guy it, is just not doing his job. Yeah, as I said, that poor, poor Albanian. The poor Albanian, the Yeah. Ambassador. So they wake up the next day, there is the gold cup day, and they're going to the horse race. And luckily for the Albanian guy, his, his conflict has somehow magically resolved itself without the assistance of Charles, thank goodness, because yeah. he <laughs> apparently was never going to assist. And they're like, all amused because he's wearing this <laughs> outfit that doesn't fit into their ascot fancy clothes. He's wearing an outfit that I guess you might wear at a race if you were
0: Yeah, they all seem to be dressed in
1: you grays know. and blacks and well, whites. Well, they're, and... they're typical ascot. Yes. Finery, yeah not going to see a horse race type look mm. but anyhow so they go off to the horse race and and again charles is just so excited he can't stop talking about his horse this is his big moment he's looking forward to this He's he's all happy throughout the beginning of the section despite the fact that he doesn't do a good job at his office and he clearly is very frivolous and seems to not have any real depth to him he does seem to be predominantly happy Yes. That's what I note. That's why I will say there is a change, because he seems very satisfied with his life. But So they go to the Gold Cup race, and again, there's Fane talking to Eloise. How can we meet? How can we meet? And so eventually he says, why don't we go sneak off to the yellow rolls royce and the only time we can do that is during the gold cup race and she kind of protests he's gonna expect me to be with him for the gold cup race and he's gonna notice if i'm gone and he's like well that's the only time we can do it so she's pretty much threatening her take it or leave it he's not a very nice fellow this vein
0: no he really isn't no yeah i I do not see the appeal he's well he is good looking i suppose but like his younger
1: good looking yeah his personality is quite poor So she makes some absurd excuse to Charles about why she can't sit with him at the Gold Coast because she has to go sit with the American ambassador because he has a horse in the race. And then Charles says, But I have a horse in the race. And she says, But your horse is going to win. And he doesn't have a prayer, so it would be charity to go sit with him. And he says, I thought charity began at home, (laughs) which I thought was a really cute little dialogue there. But she runs off and leaves him. And as he's sort of milling about by himself, who does he run into? But our friend Angela mm. St. Simone. And what does she do? <sighs> What does she do?
0: She is up to no good. Yes.
1: I just wish she would just be quiet and mind her business. And I don't know if she did this on purpose to make him miserable, or if she just was trying to put him on his guard, or, or she, maybe she really thought he knew. I'm not really sure what her motivation is. It seems like a rotten motivation, a malicious motivation to me, but I don't know.
0: It seemed like there was a, something that he said that she at first misunderstood and yeah, the, because she he yes. said, you
1: look worried, Charles. Well, about the French horse. That's what he was worried about. Y- yes. And she was like, oh, that. Well, <laughs> I didn't really. Yeah, I guess you don't have to worry about that. And then, of course, he's like, well, what do you mean? What were you talking about? And she insinuates something about young men from the foreign office and bored housewives and the yellow Rolls Royce in a car park and how exciting that must be and then you just see see I think right here you just see him become a totally different person his expression just drops he's so excited about the race and then all of a sudden he doesn't care anymore about this horse he doesn't care about the gold cup and what does he do he goes into the car park to look for the yellow Rolls Royce and what does he find as you can imagine, <laughs> he finds his wife with fame. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And so then, obviously, he's upset. He misses the whole gold cup race, which was his what he was mm-hmm. so excited about. When they give him the trophy, he's not even happy. He's devastated. And I, I really find this so heartbreaking, this one scene where he goes up to the horse and he pats him. He says, my boy, my boy. And then he just, you just see his head drop. And you know he's starting to cry because they're calling him. And the next thing you see is him wiping his eyes. And it's just, it's just such a heartbreaking scene. No matter what. I think of Rex Harrison as a person. The way he portrays this character is beautifully done, in my opinion. I felt the pain of the
0: character. He had my sympathies, even actually even before that. I I found him very likable. He was, yes, he was likable.
1: He was likable. And... This is going to be a hard episode to do because we don't want to spoil all the endings. So we won't say what winds up happening, but this is what I say when the character undergoes a change, his life has been changed completely now because he has this knowledge that he didn't have before. He, I guess you could say he was blissfully ignorant before and now he's being faced with a reality that he never wanted to face and it's completely changed his outlook. Yes. So that's the first segment. Any other thoughts on the first segment?
0: No, let's go on to the second one.
1: Okay, the second segment, my favorite as far as the cinematography and the music. In this segment, I love it a lot just for those two things. We're going to start out with, (laughs) we have George C. Scott in this one. He is playing a mobster and quite well played a mobster. He's, to me, terrifying in this role. I find him very intimidating and very chillingly terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he just there's something about George C. Scott. He has a very frightening presence. And that is not just something perceived by me. George C. Scott was kind of a semi dangerous person. First of all, I guess we should say he's a four time Oscar nominee. He won Best Oscar for Patton. You know, of course he refused the Oscar. Didn't oh, that's show up.
0: Right. He didn't yes. show up
1: when they said, Why didn't you show up? He was said he was busy watching a hockey game.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very important as one does
1: well more important than the Academy Awards now this may maybe this explains a little bit about George C Scott's personality but it says he joined the United States Marine Corps at age 17 in 1945. But he never saw any combat, but then for the next four years, he served with the honor guard at Arlington National Cemetery, for which he was decorated. And it's said that he gained a reputation as a heavy drinker during this period, he admitting to finding the grave detail extremely depressing. He worked in a film with Ava Gardner, and uh, apparently when he was drunk, he was extremely Frightening Mm -hmm. and abusive and scary. People were actually literally afraid of him when he was drunk. He was a completely different person. It said he beat up Ava Gardner so badly when he was drunk that he actually broke her shoulder. They had to film some of her scenes in a body cast. That's how badly beaten she was. There's many... Stories about people that work with him that were afraid of him said he was very intimidating and intense. And Carl <laughs> Malden, I read that Carl Malden said during the making of Patton, they couldn't finish filming a scene because for some reason, I don't know why this happened, but George C. Scott had in this ping pong player that was like the world champion of ping pong. And he insisted on playing this guy, the world champion of ping pong. He insisted on playing ping pong with him until he could win a set. And that went on and on for an extremely <laughs> long time. And they couldn't finish whatever scene they were doing in Patton. That's insane. So it's just <laughs> yeah. like George C. Scott is an odd one. But this is a great role for him. And I read that he was, I think, one. He looks like he's 6'8 in this film. He looks tall and just foreboding.
0: Yeah. The thing about George C. Scott, I think, is that whatever he was in life his acting is just unquestionably amazing yes fantastic I
1: agree he's actually my favorite Scrooge to go on a little side story but he's my favorite Scrooge his, that his is sp- a
0: good adaptation.
1: Yeah, his version mm. of Scrooge was excellent. And then they start out with a little bit of sightseeing. Well, Shirley MacLaine plays his girlfriend, his fiance, his fidanzado. How do they say that word? <laughs> fidanzado or whatever. I, I, I Sorry, I don't, I'm not good at Italian. But she plays this girlfriend of his. Her name is May in the film. His name is Paolo Maltese. And Shirley MacLaine, of course, is still alive. We, we have a couple people in the segment still alive. Shirley MacLaine, yes. she's nominated for six Oscars. She won the Best Actress for Terms of Endearment. And she was named, I didn't know if you know, she was named after Shirley Temple. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and of course, we know her brother is Warren Beatty. And she plays this gangster's mole. She's referred to several times that she used to be a hat check girl. They're trying to see the sights of Italy, which very beautiful. Again, very beautiful shots of Italy. And she's totally bored. Everything he's trying to show her, she's like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Why is it leaning? Well, I, it's just, you know, she's not impressed with anything. My
0: favorite scene in the movie, honestly, is when they are they see the Leaning Tower of Pisa and then they're looking at, I think it's a cathedral the that's cathedral nearby. And, and he's, he's like, look at this magnificent cathedral, yada, yada, yada. And she's like, there's too many pillars. Too many pillars. <laughs> too many pillars. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah, she's
1: totally unimpressed. And she's frustrating him because he's trying to show her all these wonderful things. And he has a sidekick with him. George C. Scott Paolo has his sidekick, his sort of, I guess, one of his underlings, Joey Friedlander, played by Art Carney, one of my favorite
0: actors in this film. Same. I I, I love him. I I just, he was just so endearing. Yes. Yeah.
1: His character was wonderful. And this is his first credited film role.
0: Yeah, that I, I can't I don't remember seeing him in a lot yeah. of films.
1: Yeah, I mean he did a lot of TV shows and some TV movies prior mm-hmm. to this, but this is his first credited film role. He did win a Best Actor Oscar for Harry and Tonto. He's also known for being Ed Norton on The Honeymooners. He also he served as an infantryman and machine gun crewman for the duration of World War II. He fought in the invasion of Normandy. In 1944 where he was wounded in the leg by shrapnel following his injury his right leg was shorter than his left leg and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life i didn't know that art carney but uh, oh, he just a really good job in in this film i really love his character he does the character so well he plays him Perfectly, I think. And he's sort of this henchman for Paulo, the mobster. And he's sort of coming along and has to keep dealing with May. And at first, he finds her very annoying. And George C. Scott's characters, Paulo, is complaining about oh this is girl and he's kind of like yeah boss yeah boss you know <laughs> what's
0: he gonna say yeah he can't say
1: anything he's kind of caught between a rock and hard play so he's just saying nothing so eventually they go to this car dealership and george c scott sings that oh solo mio is that really george c scott singing i'm wondering <laughs> I-, I thought so i wondered that in my uh, mind it sure i was like sounded was like this how george- i would imagine like yeah, george c, c. Is c. scott <laughs> singing the song yeah somebody can tell us if they know but they go in and he's looking at this fancy modern black rolls royce and may immediately is gravitated towards this yellow rolls royce and she's really fond of it she says it's smiling and she's hugging it and she really likes it she likes the little telephone and she makes joey get in and she calls him on the phone pretending she's some fancy lady and all this and so they wind up purchasing the yellow rolls royce after he bullies and threatens the car salesman Apollo's not a very nice character either. But then I think we're kind of given a clue because you
0: sort of do wonder as you're watching these segments, what year is this? It took me a while to get my bearings. The, by that point, I had my bearings just because of Shirley MacLaine looking at the- the, the poster. The Gene Harlow yep, dinner at yep. eight poster. That dinner at yeah. eight. So we
1: have to guess it's in 1933. And the reason you might be confused, Ian, is because Edith Head, who did- Shirley MacLaine's wardrobe, that does not look anything like what you were wearing in the 19, early 1930s. No, it's, it looks it's, very much like what you were wear in the late 1950s, maybe early 1960s.
0: Yeah, I mean, she even looks maybe just a tad like Marilyn Monroe. It's not,
1: her costumes do not reflect the early 1930s. But I would say that the men's costumes do. Yeah. The straw hat, the sort of gangster suit, what do they call it, a zoot suit or whatever mm-hmm. they call it these days. But yeah, that's why it's confusing.
0: Well, even Jean Moreau's dresses I couldn't yeah. quite place. Would, well, it's hard
1: because the, they're British upper gentry, so I'm not quite as familiar what, yeah. what that would look like. But she's supposed to be an American hat check girl. And then they go to do more sightseeing. And while they're sight, she sees this man, played by Alain Delon. Alain Delon.
0: Which very, is a lot of fun to say. Very
1: rhymey. Alain yeah. Delon. And in his most handsome, right? I thought interesting about Alain Delon that he, in the mid-50s, served in the French Marines in the War of Indochina. And he spent 11 months in jail. Hmm. Yeah. They said he served in the French Marines in that war for four years. But he, again, another person still alive. Yes, yeah. I've not seen a lot of his films. He's obviously a big French star, very big star of France. I've not seen a lot of his films. I have seen a film I really like of his called Once a Thief. It's a black and white film with Anne Margaret and Van Heflin. And he does a really nice job in that. In this,
0: I just... He's very handsome. He's very
1: handsome. Yeah, this is not his best showcase. No, no. I feel like he's kind of... I don't think he did a great job in this film. Maybe it's, again, maybe it's the character didn't have a lot to work with. I don't know. He kind of plays this Italian photographer slash gigolo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically goes around trying to hit up American lady tourists for money for his photographs or perhaps other things. I don't know. But he works for tips. Let's just Mm -hmm. say that. May becomes aware of him. She's kind of watching him scamming what she considers scamming these women. But then as they're driving along from place to place, they see the legs sticking out of a bush and immediately Paolo's on high alert. What is this? What is this? Is there some sort of gangster thing going on here? So they jump out. And what it turns out is that Stefano is lying in the grass through a hedge taking pictures of a lady who's skinny dipping and swimming in the nude. And so so then, of course, both Paolo and Joey are also looking through the hedge (laughs) at this lady. And then they had told May to wait in the car. And she's like, I'm not waiting in the car. I'm not waiting in the car. And she gets out and <laughs> she's walking towards him. I guess she's carrying one of the guns. That's and the right. gun goes off yes. and that lady screams and runs away. And and they're like, what are you doing? With, what are you doing with this gun? you nut, not, you know, whatever. And then Stefano, he's standing there on the side of the road. And he's like, oh, I, I wanted to get money to get a train. I was going to take this photograph. And they're like, oh, come on, get in the car. And Paolo at this point likes him. He thought thinks this guy yeah. is this funny guy. And he's talking Italian to him because Paolo likes to think think that he's an Italian. I mean, he is a, a, he Italian, is. but he wants to be considered like an Italian-Italian, I He's guess. been away from Italy, yeah.
0: so he, he's yeah. back. and, and That's why he yeah, was
1: like, oh, home. how did you know that I was an American? And he's like, uh, this car, your girlfriend, <laughs> your buddy here. And then that's when I think Joey says to him, lay off, kiddo, or something. And then after oh. that, he adopts this kiddo. Stefano starts adopting the word kiddo every time he talks to Joey. They wind up taking him to the, one of the cities. And that's when he starts to try to take the pictures of May, and she she's not giving him the time of day. She doesn't like him. But when he's off taking some pictures, Joey says calls him this word, uh, amoral, right? Yeah, says he's amoral. And yeah, she thinks he says immoral. And he's like, no, no, there's a difference. People that are immoral know that things are wrong, but they keep doing it. People that are amoral don't know right from wrong. So she makes this big point of using this word with him and saying you're amoral. You don't know right from wrong. And he agrees with her like, yeah, Mm -hmm. he's very easygoing this stefano yes and he starts to kind of win her over a little bit at first she hates him but then as they're sitting there talking and we have to remember this girl's been disinterested in every possible site that paulo's been trying to show her since the beginning of the segment but he starts telling her about caligula and all of a sudden she starts asking who is this caligula guy getting more interested in these things and, and paulo sees this and was like hit the road dude he gets infuriated he no longer is a big fan of stefano's he's like get out of here so he goes separate at one point he mentions that he's going to be in this place called suriano that's where he stays or that's where he goes and they all go off to the hotel and what winds up happening is that oh my gosh some gang war has broken out and paulo is needed in the in the states so, but he leaves them there at the hotel and says, you know, do whatever you like. And then I guess a period of time passes. See, this part is confusing a little too.
0: Yeah. I got that impression. I don't know how long because they're sitting of time. in the hotel after yeah. a
1: while, and she's like, "Well, what's on tap today, Joey?" Oh, no, you know what they said. This is one of my favorite parts. I w- wanted to mention this before he gets on the ship to go to America. Remember, they have to travel by ship, so I guess that again should give you some reference of hmm. he's not like he got in a plane. He gets on the ship to go travel to America, and she's <laughs> talking to the yellow Rolls Royce, saying he's leaving us. What a heel! Blah 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 blah, and he says to Joey, should I take her to a doctor? And Joey's like, I don't think there's much they can do, boss. And he's like, well, I don't want to marry a nut. And he's like, you don't? And he's like, <laughs> well, not a real nut. And he's like, do they come any realer? <laughs> it's just, I just really like that part. I thought I think I always think that's really funny. And then his expression is like, <laughs> <and> just, <laughs> it's such a good little scene there. Yeah, Joey just seems like he has a handle on everything. He automatically is aware of what all the undercurrents of everything is whereas paulo doesn't really and even may doesn't really it's almost like everybody else is naive in their way but joey i feel like he has a knowledge of what all is going on he's aware of all the undercurrents happening yeah
0: yeah he's had to see things clearly and he's had to adapt
1: yeah so paulo goes off they go back they're sitting in the hotel apparently days have passed and she says, can we go somewhere else? Paulo said we could go somewhere else if I got bored. And they asked this concierge, where else is there to go? And he's listing these cities. And one of the cities he lists is Soriano. And she's like, hmm, <laughs> why don't we go to that city? And you can see Joey is Uh uh-oh, this is not good. But he says, okay. So they go off to the city of Siriano. And of course, as soon as they get there, who do they see? Stefano. Stefano, Stefano. yep. And they wind up sitting down at a table. And of course, he spots her and comes over right away. And this is sort of the beginning of a little, they start spending time together and Stefano starts showing them the sights, right? And he shows them to the swimming hole with this cave. They said something about is there ghosts here? And he says no, the ghosts won't hurt us unless you're a murderer. And she <laughs> totally side-eyed Joey. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to go swimming into this hole. It's this cave. Technically yeah. it's like a pond or something that goes into this big cave and it's underground. And he's like let's go in there. And she's trying to get Joey to come in. He's like, I'm not going in that hole. Yeah, and that <laughs>
0: ghost story completely works on Joey. Yeah, he's like,
1: yeah. I'm not going in that hole. She's like are you afraid of ghosts? He's like, I'm not afraid of ghosts. i afraid of that hole <laughs> but anyhow so they go in and then this is when suddenly stefano winds up realizing who exactly paulo matezi really is and he's just a little bit concerned that he's sort of making time with his girlfriend and this is this murdering gangster that he's even heard of in italy and she's like well now nah, i guess you're scared and then he shows her he's not scared by making out with her and this and that and they have a lot of tender moments in there and he's pretty much saying you know why are you settling for this guy Bye. and she's like well this is the best i can
0: do i think she says something to the effect of he was the, the only one. person to be nice to mm-hmm. me yeah
1: and meanwhile he's not all that nice to her to be honest yeah he's kind of bullying <laughs> he's not yeah. exactly a nice not fellow. sure what
0: nice yeah, like. yeah he can, know, throughout situation. the
1: entire segment he's always slapping her
0: uh, yes yeah. yes he does he yeah.
1: slaps her numerous times
0: so she's had a hard life. Yeah, and
1: apparently she hasn't had it very good. And he's trying to tell her, you deserve better, basically. Don't sell yourself short. He brings out a new side of her. He brings a new awareness of her to herself. He shows her what qualities she had that she didn't even know that she had. So it's really sweet and special like that. And then they're done swimming. Again, her bathing suit, I don't think is representative of women's bathing suits in the 1930s, but Joey's and Stefano's are. And they come back out and we don't know where Joey went. He's gone somewhere for the time being. (laughs) She gets in the yellow rose voice to change and he comes in and then they draw the shade. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, so whatever happens, happens. And then at one point, Joey comes up to the car. He's about to get in and he sees Stefano's shoes and hat sitting on the ground there and he just walks away. So we're kind of led to believe that something has taken place. And Joey knows what's up. And jo- yes, and Joey knows that. And then the next thing, they're back at the hotel. This is the next day. She's excited. She's going to go to the square and she's going to meet Stefano. And she's so happy now. She's just totally different from the beginning. She's complete opposite. She was so disinterested. Nothing was exciting. Now she's excited about everything. She's looking forward to things. She's telling Joey all these facts and information. And he's showing her the paper like... Yeah, this paper is seven days old and it shows the guy that Paulo was supposed to kill has been killed. So they realize that at any moment, Paulo could come back. And he has come back. He had gone to the hotel, he was looking for them. And basically, she says to Joey, Will he let me go? There's a lot of meaningful dialogue, I think, in this particular segment. Like when he says there's law of survival and stuff like that, when he talks about mm-hmm. that, I think just really meaningful dialogue here. And suddenly, Joey has a different relationship with her.
0: Yes almost like a fatherly figure yes. maybe.
1: Yeah, maybe at first know. he he was annoyed by her. He didn't like her. But by the end of the segment, his relationship mm-hmm. with her has changed completely. And both of them have changed a lot. She especially has changed almost completely. And Joey has changed also just a little bit more subtly. But I feel like there's such a change in both the characters. And I, I feel like, again, the way Art Carney played that through the segment was very impressive to me.
0: Yeah, he's a real standout in this movie.
1: Yeah, and so we don't want to say what happens no (laughs) because we're coming towards the end of the segment so You'll have to watch to see what happens with Stefano and Paolo and Joey and May. But obviously, at the end of each segment, what happens is the car is abandoned for whatever reason. This car was only supposed to be there for a while they were in Italy. So it was eventually going to be given back anyway. Did you have anything else you want to say about that segment? No, let's move on to the third segment. The last segment, my personal favorite segment of all the segments, I sometimes just watch this segment <laughs> of the film, I admit I will turn this film on and just go to the
0: segment because I love this segment so much. Yeah, that, it's a toss up for me between the second and third. Yeah, it's yeah. just
1: so delightful. It's such a delightful <laughs> segment. And we're lucky to have one of the greatest actresses ever in this particular segment, Ingrid Bergman, a seven time Oscar nominee. She won three Best Actress Oscars for Gaslight, Anastasia, and Murder on the Orient Express. She's only one of three actresses ever to be awarded three Oscars. And only Catherine Hepburn has more with four. <laughs> and of course, we know Ingrid Bergman is a Swedish actress. Her character in this is just she plays this character so well so well i love this character because she's so ridiculous really
0: <laughs> yes Yes, she's, she's, especially at the beginning, she's very over the top. Yes, yes, yes
1: very over the top. So what we see, again, we're going to start by seeing the yellow Rolls Royce is going to be, he's in a shop, it's all dusty, it looks like it has something written on the windshield, and we see they're calling this lady. Ingrid Bergman's name in the film is Gerda Millett. She's looking for a car, and you, you get the impression that she thinks she's very clever, the way she negotiates. When you see the other side of the conversation, and you see the condition of the car, <laughs> and then you see when they, they say, oh, it's $6,000. And she's, oh, well, she'll take it for 5000 Like, she thinks she's getting a bargain. And they pretty much are like, oh, yeah, no problem. And they're like laughing at each other. And they're like, and you get a very qualified chauffeur. And you have this guy standing there that was the yeah, mechanic right, of the car, right. looking around like, where's the qualified chauffeur? <laughs> and I really like that guy, to be honest, Michele. Mm-hmm. I really like that guy. He was so cute. He was an Italian actor. It's interesting, this Michele. He was an Italian actor called Carlo Crocolo. I don't know. He was actually a big radio and voice actor, so he must have had a really nice voice, but I don't think he speaks in this film.
0: I don't recall him speaking either. Does he speak when
1: he comes in and tells her that they have to go?
0: Maybe then. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I I never noticed, but he often dubbed American actors for Italian audiences, including he dubbed Oliver Hardy in the Laurel and Hardy films Hmm. for the Italian audiences, which I thought was interesting.
0: That's one of the things I love about this movie, is that this guy's screen time is just... Minimal. But up being played by an actor who has this really interesting yeah. background. Backstory. I mean, it's an all-star cast.
1: Yeah, and I just like his character. The way he's comical. He's comical mm-hmm. to me. Like, throughout the film, he does a lot of comical things. He may really made the most of his role, in my opinion, because he didn't mm-hmm. have much of a role, but he made the most of it. So Gerda has this companion. Here's another person that's interesting. Her companion's name is Hortense Astor. She's played by Joyce Grenfell. Her mother was a Virginia socialite, Nancy Langhorner of the Virginia Langhorns. Those Virginia Langhorns. Yes. Surely everybody knows who that is. <laughs> but her aunt was a British politician named Nancy Astor, and this also was her final film as well. She's also another character in this particular scene that's just very, you just kind of really like. She, again, makes the most of her appearance here. She's very good foil for Ingrid Bergman here, I it's think. It's fun to
0: watch the yeah, two of them Yeah, they're interact. cute together. Yeah. They
1: go into this hotel, and this Gerda Miller, Ingrid Bergman, is so, I guess, to terms we would call entitled would be the word yeah. to use for her. She is so entitled. She's so entitled to the point that she's completely naive to any potential dangers to herself. She cannot believe that
0: there could be a danger to her. And just to place this for everybody, she's in Italy. Italy. On the border of Yugoslavia before, right before Hitler yeah. invading Yugoslavia. Right. Yes, like right yeah. before. Yeah.
1: So at least we have a time reference for this yes. one as well. And possibly I do think the clothes are a little bit more proper. Representative of the time frame. But she also has this little dog that she carries around with her, this little Pekingese that goes throughout the film. It's constantly in her scenes. And the dog was called Mandy. The animal trainer, his name was John Holmes, and that was his actual dog, Mandy, that played the Pekingese, in case you wanted to know.
0: It's a sweet little dog.
1: Yeah, it's really cute. And <laughs> half the time, it looks like she's like, it's literally a toy. It doesn't even <laughs> <That's> move. <true. laughs> she just kind of <laughs> schleps this dog all over the place, throwing them at people. And that, that's one of the things you see when she comes in the hotel she picks up the dog and just throws it off to one of the hotel workers and says take this dog for a walk she's very entitled like yeah. that and she's going in to sit with hortense and they're talking about whatever and who comes in and this is the second time it's so funny that we are again on this because we're going to talk again about wally cox like we talked about him at the bedford yes. incident. yes so wally cox comes in and wally cox is this scene is really funny to me mm-hmm. he comes in he's trying to tell her like, look there's an invasion you kind of need to leave you know your visit to the Yugoslavian king has been canceled and she's all offended and she's also offended that they've sent him because he's only the assistant to the vice council and she <sighs> thinks that is too much of an underling to be associated with her and why above all why am i being told i can't go to see the king by the assistant to the vice council <laughs> she's very indignant and he's just trying to tell her she's like isn't this a free country and he's like i wouldn't call (laughs) Mussolini's Italy a free country and he keeps trying to talk quietly and looking around like if anybody's listening he is really funny Wally Cox is really funny in this scene and he's just trying to convince her please go to a place that's I think he's trying to convince her to go to a place that's safe right I mean he doesn't necessarily say that but that's the impression that I get and don't go to
0: Yugoslavia
1: she doesn't pay any attention to him and he just at the end just throws up his arms like I tried and just leaves and I think he says well good luck <laughs> he just throws up his arms and leave and all the meantime while this is happening you can see somebody is sitting in the chair listening and it's Omar Sharif yes. who I really love also he plays Darvich and he looks very handsome with his curly hair and his big brown eyes I think most people know he was nominated for best supporting actress for Lawrence of Arabia and an interesting thing about Omar Sharif was he was a world-class bridge player he played worldwide and he even played in olympic tournaments that's how good he was and he was also a lifelong friend of peter o'toole who starred in lawrence of arabia with him and i really really like omar sharif i think he's just adorable
0: yeah he's fantastic and it is really interesting to see this role that's kind of like he's done lawrence of arabia you know he's got dr Dr. Dr. Mm Chivago coming it's interesting to to see him do something and you know in the in between because i haven't seen him in a lot of films yeah and this
1: is a little bit bit more comical of yeah. a role too he plays a lot there's a lot of comedy in his role to be honest and so Gerda goes outside and Molly Cox is trying to convince Hortense like please get her not to go to these things and she's like oh there's nothing I can do and then he tries to waylay her she's like I have to go out and Gerda's calling me and so she goes out to have lunch and, and Darvish comes back he just says oh Gerda Millet, <laughs> are you the most fabulous Mrs. Millet?" and he's pretending like he knows her and he's flattering her and flattering her and she's so egomaniac that she's just eating up this flattery, and and he's acting like she should know who he is, and she's too much of an egomaniac to say she doesn't know who he is. So she carries on like she yes. does know who he is, and he winds up convincing her, "Oh, you're going to Yugoslavia. You are in a position to do my country a service by taking me with you in your car." And of course, she's sure,
0: yes, kind of interesting that <laughs> yeah, she's, yeah, she's just, so um, go ahead again, like I say like, about that, well, but she's yeah.
1: just very naive and unaware of dangers, like, yeah. or she just doesn't believe that anything dangerous could happen to her, so she convinces Hortense to stay here and she lets Darvish get in the car and ride with her over the border to Yugoslavia. But as they're driving to Yugoslavia, she says so many funny things about how she donates money to the people that are against the communists or whatever. And he's in there same time like, oh, it's good that you have so much money to donate and all this stuff. Like, it's just very humorous. And then at one point he throws his passport out the window and she's like, what What are you doing? She's freaking out. And he gets out of the car. He gets everybody out of the car and he says, I'm going to go in the trunk. You put the luggage up. Here and she's like what are you doing this for and he said this is what you have to do this is how i have to get into my country and she's like well what am i supposed to do and he's like oh just drop a few names and she's made quite clear i think on numerous occasions that she hates president roosevelt and oh yes he, and he says tell them you're a great friend of president roosevelt so they come up to the border he's in the trunk and she's giving her passport and so forth to the customs officials and they seem to be impressed with her she must be a person in high standing they don't ever really explain who she is no but she has some sort of diplomatic and she's song. Something. Widow, too. So, I, yeah, I imagine she has that some high standing. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'm not really sure what she is, mm-hmm. but they're talking to her about what a great man President Roosevelt is. And she's like so angry about it. <laughs> and meanwhile, the dog starts scratching at the trunk and they're like, oh, we better open the trunk. And she's like, yeah, don't you dare open that trunk. I will report you to the authorities, to my friend, the king, and also to my great friend, President Roosevelt. <laughs> you can tell she just hates to say it. And then they wind up letting her go. And eventually, as they get along, she gets out. She opens the trunk. She thinks that Darvish has been suffocated by the carbon monoxide fumes, but he's just fallen asleep. And he gets out, he's all excited that he's in his country, and then they get back in the car, and she finds out that he's a communist.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> Which makes her infuriated yeah. that she's just assisted a communist who she hates communists, so she's just assisted a communist. And he says he's coming back in Yugoslavia because they're about to be invaded and he wants to be there to fight for his country and he loves his country, and etc. And she says, I want you out of my car. He lets her off to town, and then she asks, is there a hotel here? And he says, yes, there's not a hotel you might find suitable, but there's one that is very upper middle class. (laughs) Yes. And she says, "Well, that's not necessarily our protection against bed
0: bugs." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's such a great line. She, she, that's my second favorite line. Yeah, I, I
1: mean, honestly, <laughs> that is so comical. This particular segment is very funny. There's many laugh out loud moments. And so she goes to this hotel. She's carrying on. The waiter comes. She's ordering her food. As she's ordering her food, there's this huge explosion because the invasion is starting. And the waiter's terrified. He hides on the table. And she's like, "What are you doing down there? Get up here. I, I want my food." And he tells everybody get out. Everybody go to the cellar and everybody runs away and she's like, don't I get any dinner? Where's my martini? And She's just sitting there by herself in the restaurant. So she starts helping herself to these hors d'oeuvres or something yeah. that's sitting on the thing and making her own martini giving Duchess some things and meanwhile there's this bomb and the window shatters and she's thrown to the ground and she just gets back up and sits down and starts eating. <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing? And I-, I think that's the point where Michaela comes in and he might say something then like, we okay, have to yes, go yes and she just I haven't had my dinner and then Darvis shows up and says mrs. millet you must get out of here and she's like I'm eating my dinner and he's like look the city is burning and she's like I haven't finished yet <laughs> and he gets her up and he shows her and then she starts to become aware like, where's the anti-aircraft and he's like we don't have any this is an unprotected city and she's worried about the Red Cross or somebody to help the injured and then she's angry that they don't have any precautions in place and stuff like that so she starts taking off all the tablecloths and there's bound to be a shortage of bandages let's get in my car let's go see if we can help the injured (laughs) this is another funny scene where she's trying to drive forward and she backs up backwards and then she tries to leave the garage and she takes half of the side of the garage off and poor darvish is like mrs millet and he's like all scared (laughs) for his life but then they wind up going around picking up injured people and taking them to the hospital and she does this for many many trips they don't show all the trips but they say and now you're starting to see here the difference in her all of a sudden she's not this ridiculous frivolous person anymore. She's out there trying to help people. That, she's
0: very compassionate. Yes, and very, very compassionate. Brave. She's doing these brave things and it's not just because she's naive, which yeah. is what she's been for most of the movie, but because she she's feels determined. It. Yeah, she's yeah.
1: determined to help. That's what's important to her. So they wind up helping all these people and then she says, don't you have to get up to the mountains to be with these people? And he's trying to say, well, you don't have to get involved with this. And she's like, don't be silly. And she drives them up to the mountains. And again, when they're driving on the mountain pass she's almost driving off the mountain pass, and He's so <laughs> scared and terrified. They said that the winding mountain road when they're heading up to the mountains was the location for another car scene the same year, the race between James Bond's Aston Martin and the white convertible Mustang and Goldfinger.
0: I've seen Goldfinger, but it was so long ago that I can't comment on that. I'm yeah. going to have to watch it again. And I, see. That's what they yeah, said. It's the yeah. same
1: road they used. So they get to this camp and there's a group of people that are sort of amassed together and he greets them, whatever. And they're all these rebel fighters. I guess they're the communist people, but now they want to fight the Germans and first of all she gives the leader her dog please take the dog out for a walk she just never loses that sort of everybody's job is to take care of my dog attitude but she gets some other clothes where she looks much more common Mm -hmm. she's wearing pants and kerchief and like a leather jacket or something and they give her these sort of bread and cheese meal and he's apologizing for the meal and she says perfectly adequate perfectly nourishing and she asks if she can drink from the well so all of a sudden again a real change in her character and he says we'll get you home and she says well, what about the rest of your people? Well, you need to go get the rest of your troops. She said, how many people do you have? He said, oh, about 200. She said, well, you have 57 here. And he said, how did you know that? And she said, well, I counted them, <laughs> which I thought was funny too. And then she tells him, I'm going to take the car and we're going to go gather all your men until you have enough men here. And I don't know how he felt. I think at the beginning, he went, was just using her as an opportunity to get where he wanted to go. But you can see that he's developing a real respect for her and a liking for her because of everything she's doing. And the way she's changing and they go to go to bed and she's going to sleep in the yellow Rolls Royce and he sort of starts kissing her and then you don't see anything further but again you get the impression yeah. that something has happened in the yellow Rolls Royce again and then the next morning they get up and they go and get more of the people. They have this whole segment where they keep going in the yellow Rolls Royce and getting people and a lot of funny occurrences happen there too. <laughs> like people are getting thrown off the car because you're driving like a maniac yeah. and all these things happen but i think that's probably as much as we want to even do of that one
0: yeah if we go much further i think we're going to give the
1: ending away it's such a delightful one that particular segment like i said my favorite of the three
0: yeah i really liked the second one too yeah but i think when i first watched the film my first thought was that third one was the best one yeah so yeah
1: i think it's what ingrid bergman really brings to the film i don't know if it would have been as great with somebody else
0: well, I think, too, for me, bringing in that World War II aspect mm-hmm. added a lot of resonance to that story, too. Yeah,
1: and the character actors you have in that segment, too, are really, mm-hmm. really good, like Michaela and Hortense and even Wally Cox. It, it has a little bit of a different tone than the other two, I feel yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, I would say that, too. And so that's basically the end of the Yellow Rolls
0: Royce. Any other statements you want to make? No, I think we covered it pretty well. So star rating? Okay, for this one, I'm going to go with three. and a half stars. It's a lot of fun. It's not a perfect movie. No. But it's definitely well worth seeking out, well worth watching. It's a real treat if you like looking for something that you haven't seen some, you know, Ingrid Bergman in. And for me, it was also fun seeing some of those international stars that I had heard of but wasn't very acquainted with. So yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give it a four because I really love the acting in it. I love the actors, the all-star cast. I love the cinematography. Jack Hildyard, I thought, did really Joe. I love the music. I love the score throughout. I really love the score, especially in the second thing. Like you said, it's like a comfort film. It's like a guilty pleasure film. Although there's no reason for it to be a guilty pleasure. It's You could just
0: like it no, to like it. No but guilt involved it, here. It's just,
1: I find it so delightful and like I said, anytime I maybe i am feeling not great or something and I just want something pleasant to watch, I will always watch the third segment of The Yellow Rosaries because I just love it so very much. And again, I wouldn't call it a critically acclaimed film. I wouldn't call it cutting edge in any way. It's just fun. She does a lot of character development. I really like it. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. Yeah, and 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 I
0: feel like it's a kind of movie that doesn't really get made much anymore if at all
1: it's a very interesting premise the movie the three stories yes it's a very interesting premise and again i'm not surprised it's done by all the same people that the vips because i also really adore the vips so
0: yeah that same very light touch yes just a lot of fun yeah yeah
1: so i think that's all the time we have for today i want to thank you deanne again for being our guest for the fourth time
0: thanks again wendy
1: yeah uh, maybe we'll see you again in the future well we won't see you but we'll hear you in the future i'd
0: be happy to come back for number five yeah
1: well we'll definitely check it out maybe one of these days you can pick another movie instead of doing all my movies i'd be happy to all right that's all the time we have for today so for silver screen time machine wendy's classic film review this is wendy saying goodbye thank you for listening to our podcast today please don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and tiktok and please leave us a comment or a review on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast intro and outro music composed by heidi Engel. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick. Recorded at PCTV Studios, Pittsburgh, PA. See you next time.